What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. I'm here outside the White House. It's getting fucking crazy. Oh, my God. This this is a party. Dude, this dude even took his tits out. That's how crazy this party's getting right here. Look at, oh, my God. And those are some high-end science titties right there, world class. This lady should put a QR code right above her butt where they put trans tramps so that other people know where they can get themselves some good plastic surgery. Madonna should be talking to this dude's uh, person. Anyways, you want more on the reports about whether or not this man or lady standing behind me is or is not attractive? You're going to have to come out to Jacksonville this weekend, Saturday. It's the season opener for Summer Porch Store, and I got a whole report on these here titties. So if you're interested in learning more about that and seeing me do stand-up Jacksonville this Saturday, it's the Summer Porch Store annual kickoff event, first time performing in Jacksonville. Uh, I know Florida's my people, and that's where I can yell horrible shit in backyard. So uh, show the fuck up, Florida people. Jacksonville, come out. Season opener. Also, uh, sadly, I'm a little bummed that I'm not going to be going to Pork Fest this year. It's always uh, an amazing time, particularly last year. Put up that Meacock tent, got to do some live podcasts. It was a uh, fun time. Brian from Lions of Liberty reached out, friend of the show, wanted me to let the Run Your Mouse viewers know that he's going to be out there uh, doing a stand-up show with Lou Perez along with some other events. So, uh, you know, he's a cool guy. He's also bald. He's tall, thin, handsome. He's got a wife, so don't hit on him. But you could just walk up to him at the thing and be like, yo, what are you up to out here? But if you if you got to pick between Summer Port Store in Jacksonville and Lions of Liberty, you got to come Jacksonville this weekend. I don't know. Bring uh, what was that crazy drug that they were doing in Florida that was getting people to eat people? What was that thing? You guys are oh yeah, basalts. Bring your basalts. Bring your transgender girlfriends. We're gonna inspect fake titties. It's gonna be a party. All right, let's uh, let's change up the background now, cause uh, you know we've got we've got serious things to discuss. I, I can't spend the whole episode with the entire audience all turned on, having raging erections, unable to focus on the matters at hand. So here we are. You know, because uh, I have teleportation powers now. I don't know if you guys know that. I don't know if you guys know that uh, Run Your Mouth got the budget to teleport to uh, to new areas. Uh, I like that I'm playing around with the green screen like a 12-year-old, amused with the fact that I can change backgrounds, which is a technology that's probably existed since the 1980s. And here I am congratulating myself on studio improvements and how incredible of a broadcast this is solely based on the fact that I can change images behind me. But here we go. I'm reporting from outside Mar-a-Lago, where we've got the exclusive breakdown on exactly what is going on with Donald Trump. And uh, let's give a watch to just yesterday, Donald Trump, he was arraigned. Nobody could get into court. Nobody could see what was going on. Sure, we got the little sketches where they made Donald Trump looking even more orange as possible. We had CNN breaking in, finding themselves exclusive access to a payphone, going, look, we're breaking the law to get you the coverage that you're not allowed to get while we scream about how no one's allowed to break the law. But anyways, here we got Donald Trump getting up right after, uh, you know, getting arraigned, getting arrested, getting in trouble. And uh, let's hear what Donald Trump had to say. Are you guys able to hear that? I'm going to be honest. I can't hear that. I think I got to move over my speakers. What about you people in the chat? Are you guys able to, to hear this? Shauna Thornton, the basalts were actually fake news. It was just a schizophrenic on plain old Mary Jane who was eating faces. Well, then basalts are back in play. I actually did them once. It's pretty good. I don't recommend them. It was only once, but it was pretty good. 
No sound. Everyone's reporting no sound. All right, let's make some changes here. Don't worry. We'll, we'll get that sound going. We'll get that sound going. Let's try it this way so that I can hear the sound. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to get that sound. Ooh. Wait, wait. Let's see if you guys hear this. You guys tell me if you hear this now. Can't a rich guy hoard stupid shit? I mean, this is the dream of dreams. To be so rich that you could throw shit into a box, just stash it in an extra bathroom that you have in your house, and not even be concerned about needing to actually break the boxes down. Because we've all moved. We've all moved. I still have boxes here from when I moved. Who doesn't have some boxes sitting around with random shit that you feel is precious and important in your life, but you have absolutely no interest in actually going through and putting together... Unless you got a wife who's yelling at you. But if you're a single male, I'm sure you still got boxes in your apartment. I actually still have the box for this very desk that we're on, which is going to sit in the living room until I get down every other item of my to-do list in order before I can throw that away. That's my working system. You see what I'm saying? So it's like Donald Trump is living the dream where he can have other people just pack up a box, and he's so rich, he even has just an extra bathroom around that he could stash boxes in. This man is living the dream, and we're going to give him shit for that? And so, of course, we've already done an episode where we broke down some of the dirty details of how insane it is that for all the crimes of U.S. presidents, we're going to get a guy in trouble for not returning documents on the government schedule. And so here we go. I have um, Donald Trump should hire me to defend him in court. I feel that if they took this run your mouth, including the titty opening, so that everyone on the jury was paying attention, because that's how you get everyone's interest. You got to throw some tits in front of them to go, listen, I know what you're into. And they go, I am into that. And then you go, but that's actually a dude. And they're like, what? And you go, you see, it wasn't what you expected. And now with that open mind that they can present things to you that weren't what you anticipated, I bring you the following evidence. You see, that's the kind of shit I can play. I can be running tricks on the jury. I could be showing them things just to be like, it's not what you thought it was. And then they go, oh my God, this guy's a magician. I, he's inside my brain. And then I would show them the other evidence and they go, okay. We're going with Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, if you need a new lawyer because you keep having to fire all your other ones and then you got lawyers who are just taking notes for no reasons that they can hand them over to the government and just, uh, and uh, you know, uh, basically just hand evidence to them, I, I'm not going to do that to you. Don't worry. I won't record any of our conversations. There'll be no evidence and I'll be in great pictures of tits. Here we go. So this is the, the first thing that I wanted to focus on, on uh, one of the elements that makes this whole charade so unfair. Uh, and watch last, yeah, last episode. It was one of the better episodes. We broke down the ridiculousness of the claim that this guy is going to get in trouble for not returning documents on the librarian schedule. But this is from the New York Times. Trump indictment shows critical evidence came from one of his own lawyers. And now I want to read this particular paragraph. Earlier this year, over Mr. Trump's objections, the special counsel overseeing the investigation, Jack Smith, obtained the notes through an invo a vocation of the crime fraud exemption. 
That exemption is a provision of the law that allows prosecutors to work around the normal protections of attorney-client privilege if they have reason to believe and can demonstrate to a judge that a client used legal advice to further a crime. So one of the crucial pieces of evidence here, um, oh, hold on one second. Did you guys not have audio for that clip that I just played? Because you came through, you said that there was sound, and I was like, oh, everyone knows what Donald Trump said. And I'm, I can't go back and post. At this point, we can't go back. We got other clips coming up, and when we get to the clips, I'll give you guys more of a chance to let me know whether or not you can hear it. It's the producer, man. Dude, I had this thing all figured out for last episode. I, I built a green screen. I got the lights up. Uh, all right, here we go. Sean Thornton, I've ran to boxes because I refuse to unpack my husband's boxes of things he definitely needs but doesn't remember. Classic. Just man, never mind, just noticed that Robbie was trying to play a video clip. No sound on the video clip. You see, I told you, someone told me they had sound. Jess, that wasn't helpful. You're ruining the whole thing. Can we start over? All right, back to this New York Times article. Earlier this year, over Mr. Trump's objections, they went past, I keep thinking that it's a doctor-client confidentiality, but it's attorney-client privilege. That's the phrase. Usually you get attorney-client privilege. You get to sit down with your lawyer. You get to have conversations. And that conversation is not allowed to be used as evidence against you. But apparently there's some sort of a provision that if they if they can demonstrate to a judge that a client use uh, legal advice to further a crime, then that would void the uh, attorney-client privilege. Now, I, to me, any conversation you're having with a lawyer could be trying to work around a crime Where's the distinction between trying to work around doing a crime where you're trying to get actual legal advice for is there a way that I can accomplish this goal legally versus trying to further a crime? I mean, like, yes, I guess if a lawyer tells you blatantly, hey, that's illegal, and then you go do it, but then, you know, you went against the advice of the lawyer, I guess even there, maybe the lawyer shouldn't have to give testimony against you. The problem I have is when you create this, it seems a lot like the uh, um, Alex Jones case where a judgment was made against Alex Jones before he ever set foot into a courtroom, ever faced a jury of his peers that he was guilty, and then the question just became how guilty. And the judge was able to do that by saying, well, since the lawyers were so bad at following the procedure, we're making a judgment against him before he even shows up into court. That's not a jury of your peers. If you have a system where people can make decisions not in the court, not in front of a jury, doesn't that just erode the entire system? Because then, like in this case, this wasn't a decision made by a jury. You might as well just decide that the guy's guilty before he shows up in court if you're deciding that the own lawyer can be used as evidence against the previous client. At that point, how much of a trial are you even having? You're definitely being given access to evidence that is not you know, traditionally available to you and things that a client could have been saying to his lawyer to figure out how he can legally accomplish his goals. The judge is categorizing it as that, uh, and how do you know without getting the, without doing a whole trial about what, it's like there should almost be a jury trial about whether or not the uh, lawyer should be allowed to give testimony against his own client. Like, how can you just make that decision outside of a courtroom and still claim that you have a fair process or that you're being granted a jury trial in front of your peers? major decisions were made before it was even presented to them. I don't know. Seems like uh, seems like the same exact thing that happened in the Alex Jones case where they made the decision that he was guilty before he was even in court. And this, if this is crucial piece of evidence, 
I, like I would need more information about what specific evidence the prosecutors had that they brought to a judge and a judge made a decision that Donald Trump was not entitled to attorney-client privilege, which is something that you're normally supposed to be uh, entitled to. All right. Now, here's the next thing that I find to be particularly crazy. Oh, no, I want to read this. This is from uh, the Wall Street Journal. It was an opinion piece. It was something that I was going on about yesterday, and I was also going on about on part of the problem. And uh, a lot of times I'm pulling information straight out of my ass. But my ass got an incredible track record. I mean, if you're going to look up assholes of America and just be pulling out random facts and information, the facts and information that I'm spewing out of my butthole, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. So I pulled out of my ass the other day that it would make sense to me that if the president has the sole authority to declassify information, then taking the information and leaving it is the process of declassifying it. You showed your intent of declassifying it. It shouldn't require anything more. So I was reading a very interesting article in the uh, Wall Street Journal yesterday that seems to confirm my theory. And then I also pulled out of my ass yesterday on part of the problem, which uh, probably we recorded yesterday. So it's probably up on Gas Digital. Go use promo code POTP. You can uh, not have to wait two days for information to be irrelevant to see it. Just go use the promo code, all $7 uh, you know, a month, and you get to, or maybe nine. I have no idea. I literally have no idea. Uh, but you can get that information sooner. But I was saying it would seem, based off of the Clinton case, that Clinton just left with it, and then they decided that he got to keep it. There was no formal declaration beforehand that he was keeping it. So this was Clinton's sock drawer in Trump's boxes. We're actually going to read both of this article because I think it's worthwhile. Although the indictment against Donald Trump doesn't cite the Presidential Records Act, the charges are predicated on the law. The indictment came about only because the government thought Mr. Trump took records that didn't belong to him and the government raided his house to find any such records. This should have never happened. The Presidential Record Act allows the president to decide what records to return and what records to keep at the end of his presidency. And the National Archives and Records Administration can't do anything about it. I know because I'm the lawyer who lost the Clinton sock drawer case. Juicy. In 2009, historian Taylor Branch published The Clinton Tapes, Wrestling History with the President. The book is based on recordings of Mr. Branch's 79 meetings with Bill Clinton between January 20th, 1993 and January 20th, 2020, 2001. According to Mr. Branch, the auto tapes preserved not only Mr. Clinton's thoughts on issues he faced while president, but also some actual events such as phone conversations among them. I'm not going to read the whole list because we don't care unless it was about the time he got his dick sucked and shoved his cigar tube up an intern. I don't care. I don't care about what Clinton was up to or if it was about his drug running uh, when he was governor. That'd be interesting. You, you, or if it's about uh, how Hillary Clinton's dick is actually bigger than uh, than Michael Obama's penis. That would be scandalous. If it was about the other contents of his sock drawer flights with Jeffrey Epstein, that would all be interesting. Clinton's trade agreements and why he wanted to keep some documents or, uh, or, or tape recordings. I don't really care. So let's move on to the actual specifics of how the Presidential Record Act works. The National Archives and Records Administration was never given the recordings, as Mr. Branch tells it. Mr. Clinton hid them in his sock drawer to keep them away from the public and took them with him when he left office. Where do you think they actually were being kept that he's calling it his sock drawer? Something something fishy there. Moving on, my organization, Judicial Watch, sent a Freedom of Information Act request to NARA for the audio tapes. The agency responded that the tapes were Mr. Clinton's personal records and therefore not subject to the Presidential Record Acts or the Freedom of Information Act. 
We sued in federal court and asked the judge to declare the audio tapes to be presidential records and because they weren't currently in Nara's possession, compel the government to get them. In defending Nara, the Justice Department argued that Nara doesn't have a duty to engage in a never-ending search for potential presidential records that weren't provided to Nara by the president at the end of his term. Nor, the department asserted, does the Presidential Records Act require Nara to appropriate potential presidential records forcibly. The government's position was that Congress has decided that the president and the president alone decide what is a presidential record and what isn't. He may take with him whatever records he chooses at the end of his term. Judge Amy Berman Jackson agreed since the president is completely entrusted with the management and even the disposal of presidential records during his time in office, she said, it would be difficult for this court to conclude that Congress intended that he would have less authority to do what he pleases with what he considers to be his personal records. Judge Jackson added that the PRA contains no provision obligating or even permitting the archivist to assume control over records that the president categorized and filed separately as personal records at the conclusion of the president's term. All right, you guys can continue with this, but I think the important part is that it was ruled previously that if you just leave with stuff, it's considered that you decided to keep it and no one else gets to declare ownership over those items. Now, did uh, Donald Trump leave with uh, nuclear materials that they shouldn't be allowed to leave with and uh, Clinton left with things that were a little bit more wholesome? That's a possibility. But I guess he got to change the law to say that there's certain materials that the president can't declassify. I guess if you give them the full authority to just declassify and leave with what they want, that is the rule that you guys made. And now while we're having all this conversation about Donald Trump, the rule of law, how he left with incredibly important documents that horrible things could have happened, didn't happen, but they could have happened because we can't trust the guy who had the job and had all the important information in his hands for four years to continue to have the important information in his hands. And my God, if our librarians say that they need something back, they're going to need something back. So while we're having a massive conversation about this, this was reported by, I believe, the Washington Examiner. They did a whole article on it. This is a graphic from uh, MRC. But in the mainstream media, there's been 291 minutes of Trump indictment coverage in zero seconds about the Biden Burisma bribery coverage. And to recap a little bit where we are in this story of the uh, possibility that there's conclusive evidence that Joe Biden was bribed. Uh, so let's just recap some of the evidence that we have at this time. One, we've got an FBI document. That, has, that is not declassified, that has been seen by multiple senators, and they're claiming that there's a report from a whistleblower that the FBI's got a document that really documents that, Donald, that, uh, that Joe Biden was bribed for $5 million. They were further claiming, this was Grassley, uh, that there's supposed tapes by Burisma that were recorded as blackmail, 17 tapes in total, that I guess further... Uh, provide evidence of the fact that Joe Biden had been bribed when he was vice president. We also have the whole Hunter Biden laptop story and, of course, confirmation by a partner of Hunter Biden's that uh, with the 10 percent going to the big guy, the big guy was, in fact, uh, Joe Biden. And so amidst all of this peripheral floating evidence of the fact that Joe Biden might have been bribed, there's also the following video where Joe Biden basically says, look at the power I had at vice president 
that I could ensure that people couldn't get the billion dollars of aid that they wanted unless they met some of my demands. This is him saying it openly. Let's make a change to the settings. Uh, it's only a one minute video, so just uh, let me know if you guys aren't hearing it and I will uh, change the speakers, but I think, hold on one second here. Oh, found my issue, everybody. Here we go. Here we go. This is going to work. If you guys don't hear it, just let me know. All right, I'm going to pull it back because it's really only one minute and I think it's worth hearing. You guys were saying it's low audio. I think it's actually low audio just because the original file is low audio with Joe Biden speaking very lowly. But I did just change the setting. You guys tell me. And if not, I'll get this corrected for the next episode. All right. Well, we're moving on. That's basically Donald Trump. You guys can go look that up in YouTube. I mean, sorry, it's Joe Biden. Go look it up in YouTube. The video is only one minute. Uh, he's speaking in front of the Council of Foreign Relations. You can literally just type in Joe Biden bribe and it will come right up. And it's Joe Biden saying that he was supposed to go out and make an announcement of an aid package. And he told them he was only going to make the announcement if they fired a prosecutor. It was a prosecutor that was looking into Burisma. Uh, and he showed up to make the announcement. They had him fired the prosecutor. Joe Biden said, I'm not going out there to make this announcement. And they said, well, you're not the president. You don't have the authority to not make the announcement. He said, watch me. I'm not going out there. Go ahead. Call, uh, call Barack Obama. And then they fired the prosecutor. It seems to me. I mean, we're having a conversation about the rule of law. Donald Trump didn't actually cause any harm with documents that he was supposed to return and didn't return. That's the best claim they have is that it just wasn't returned at the librarian schedule. On the other side of this equation, we've got Joe Biden. FBI refuses to release a document. We've got people talking about him being bribed and him basically describing the exact bribe in front of a television audience. No one seems to care. But at the same time, the other guy is in trouble for documents not returned on schedule. Now, there were two other videos I wanted to play, but it really doesn't make a lot of sense to play them because uh, for some reason, uh, I don't think... You, well, you know what? 
I'm going to play like 30 seconds and you guys tell me if the last video was low on sound because it was Joe Biden or if it's because of an improper setting. All right, improper setting. Jesus Christ, dude. Um, we're going to have to fire this producer. After all the money I'm spending on this studio, the fact that someone just fucks with the settings every single time I walk away from this computer. I got to stop renting this out to all these, uh, you know, you, you should see the parade of uh, illegal immigrants that come in here and they do their cross the border show. That's actually why I needed to put up the green screen. Because uh, I don't like the green screen. I like the old background. I was good with the old background. I said the green screen is going to get distracting. I'm going to end up wanting to show tits to the audience. I'm going to end up wanting to change the settings. And they're like, listen, if you want to continue to broadcast this show to people about how they can or can't get over the border, taking super secret routes, you're going to need a green screen. And I said, fine, I'll make that investment. Uh, all right. Yesterday, they did an FBI hearing. And I always like watching people uh, sit in seats and squirm. I like the gamemanship. I like the WWF quality of going, oh shit, look, Jim Jordan is squaring against Rochelle Walensky. By the way, he didn't do such a great job. That was the, I wasn't going to play that video, but Jim Jordan did square up against Rochelle Walensky yesterday. Not a bad looking lady, by the way. And uh, he was given her problem about uh, all the decisions that were wrong and basically questioning if she was lying to the American people. And she just did a decent job of going, no, we were going with the best evidence of the time. And all these senators, once again, you can hire me, except that this wasn't great proof of how well I would do in court. It's, it's exactly me in school. Yeah, I'll do the best job. And then you show up, you're like, ah, fuck, I left the files I needed at home. Oh, the video doesn't work. So, you know, my pitch to be Donald Trump's lawyer, that don't, don't go with someone else. Uh, but I could be on the team that, that, that maybe gives them the arguments and then they actually put it together and make sure that they have the proper files. That, that, that could be my role. Uh, anyways, back to Jim Jordan. So Jim Jordan squaring up against Rochelle Walensky. She's talking about, well, based on the best evidence of the time, that was the right decision, overlooking the part of needing to ask these people because uh, you've got Fauci pulling the exact same move. Do viruses not typically mutate? Then why were you recommending something that you knew wasn't going to work once the virus mutated? Because they keep trying to pretend, well, for the alpha variant, yeah, it doesn't matter. The virus was going to mutate. You guys knew that the virus was going to mutate. Well, it wasn't, yeah, we, we weren't sure about infection, but based on the best evidence of the time against the alpha variant and the particular time range that we were in, we were still working with the best information that we had. Best information that you had. What happened when the fucking thing mutates? All right. Going back to this FBI uh, hearing, I was going to play a video of uh, Hawley, who might be currently the reigning supreming champion of, uh, of these little dueling matches. Uh, Rand Paul certainly had his moments with Fauci, uh, but I would say, and uh, Jim Jordan was great when they were talking about Donald Trump, Russia collusion stuff. But since then, I feel like on these other topics, he's just not working his magic in the same way. Uh, I think that, uh, in my opinion, Jeff Hawley probably comes in uh, with the most consistent destruction of these people. And so in this case, he was getting after the guy about why they won't release the document. He busted on he busted the guy on admitting that at least the uh, document exists, documenting the whole uh, Biden 
uh, that, you know, that there is an FBI document saying that Biden had been bribed. And then he gets him on basically forcing the guy to claim that all of the abuses of uh, looking into digital information without a warrant was all done mistakenly. And there were like 250,000 of them. So while he's claiming, hey, we need more money, we've got all of our stuff put together, uh, we've got this situation under control, and we've fixed all of our problems, he's claiming that it was just accidental that 250,000 files, or there were 250,000 improper searches. Uh, there was also a fun video of uh, Ted Cruz giving them the business and busting him for basically going, you won't answer any of my questions. And now uh, I'm done stalling because the videos weren't working. We bring on none other than Gary Richard, author of A Twisted History of the United States of America, here to give us the breakdown of presidential crimes uh, that have happened in our past because as they yell and scream at Donald Trump for not returning documents on schedule, I think it's important to put into context just how many crimes have been uh, committed by previous presidents. How's it going, Mr. Gary? Hey, Robbie, what's going on? You gave me a really short, easy assignment of presidential crimes. Hell yeah. Give me one second. I want to change uh, where I'm plugging my headphones in. We're having some tech issues today, but give me one second. Okay. All right. Let's see. Uh, let's see if that reaches and let's see if people can uh, can hear you. Um, yeah, all right. Yeah, no, I got you. Now, uh, we'll wait in the chat just to see if uh, people can hear you, but... So you were saying what you you just you got this information down pat. This is stuff that you're familiar with. You just knew it, ready to go. Well, yeah, but of course we're talking about volumes of presidential crimes. Whether we're talking about whether they were committed prior to their ascendancy to the office or during. Their time I think uh, I think we should go with presidential crimes while in office. Okay, I mean, well, we could go back to George Washington. I mean, let's do it. Let's get the recap. Let's get the education. All right. George Washington is a cuck for Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, I mean, this is a strong start already. I like it. <laughs> everything Hamilton wants to do that's extra constitutional or blatantly unconstitutional, and what ranging from the establishment of a national bank all the way through to having a think about this a sitting president of the United States invade a state to put down a rebellion within that state, despite the fact that the governor of Pennsylvania told him not to come, that this is not part of the deal of signing on to the Constitution and ratifying it. Still, Hamilton's grand plan was to have the federal army of the United States, led by the biggest name in the United States at that time, George Washington as president, go and invade Pennsylvania to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion. This was obviously illegal and unconstitutional, but it was done anyway to establish, again, supremacy of the federal government over that of the states and federalism. So uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, they didn't like the taxes, right? They wanted to sell their, their booze without taxes or something? Exactly. So the situation was in the western parts of these states, western Pennsylvania, New York, a lot of the people were poor, so they couldn't grow wheat. Uh, because wheat, when you cut it, it rots right away. So you have to have means of conveyance like roads, canals to get the wheat from the farms into the city centers or towns for it to be consumed. So they started growing corn, but there's no infrastructure out there, right? So they can't even get their corn into the areas where they're going to be, it's going to be eaten. So they started to ferment it and they made it into whiskey. Well, 
what happens then? These poor farmers are then assessed an excise tax as part of, uh, as part of Hamilton's economic plan. And Brian McClanahan, uh, who I think you might be aware of, he's on Tom Woods a lot. He's, I think he's talked with Dave once in a while, but he's down in South Carolina. Actually, I think he lives in Alabama now, but he's done this whole book about how really Hamilton, who screwed up America, he has a book called How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. He really chronicles how in many ways, Hamilton kind of devised this grand plan so that he would know that the Western Pennsylvania farmers would rebel violently against this precise tax. And then they would have the excuse to use the federal army to go and suppress it. And that would be the first usage of the federal army against the state? Yes. And that, was, uh, <laughs> and, that, and that was against the Constitution? Well, yeah, because it wasn't, there's no, there's no clarity within the Constitution. There's no power delegated to Congress or the president that they can invade a, a sovereign state. Remember that as the states signed on and ratified the Constitution, many of them were explicit in saying that should the Constitution or should this new federal government or national government abjure its responsibilities or worse, contradict what's already the delegated powers within Article 1, Section 8, that they have a right to leave. Uh, New York, uh, Virginia, uh, Rhode Island all had this within their ratification documents. So the idea that a federal army could go in and invade a state, even though its executive, its governor said, we don't want you here, you don't have the right to be here, was, well, it was trampled upon that, that limitation by Hamilton and Washington. All right. Crime number one, George Washington invading New Jersey to punish some poor farmers. Any other juicy George Washington crimes? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I mean, all right, let's move on. Let's yeah, move he on to reality acts. It's like unconstitutional. But so sec this is uh, how uneducated I am. Who's second president after George Washington? John Adams. All right. So what's John Adams big crimes? <laughs> well, he passes these alien and sedition acts, which is going to be relevant to what we're going to talk about with Trump in a moment. So these Alien Sedition Acts were passed by these Federalist Congress and the powers that be within New England from 1796 to 1800. And basically, we were involved in a war with France. It was called the Quasi-War with France, okay? And any criticism of the government became illegal. There was a famous story of John Adams went to Boston, and there was a guy in the crowd as he was delivering a speech, and the guy in the crowd was obviously not a Federalist or a fan of Adams, and he said, I hope this windbag would get a cannonball straight up his ass. And over people who are Adams fans overheard this. And that guy got thrown in jail because of these sedition acts, just because he made a threatening remark about the president, the sitting president of the United States. Which is clearly what, a joke. He wasn't going to blast him with a cannon in his ass. No. He, yeah. I mean, he might wish to. But again, he had no access to one. You know? Right. So that so what this inspired is the famous principles of 1798. Uh, Madison and Jefferson wrote these surreptitious, secretive letters that were later approved by the Virginia and Kentucky legislators that said that there were limitations that needed to be established and that federalism was still alive, that the states retained rights to nullify, that means kind of cancel out any laws that were deemed as unconstitutional. And those laws, the Alien Sedition Acts, were deemed as unconstitutional per the Tenth Amendment because, again, no power was given over to the federal government. It was retained by the states to suppress free speech, for example. All right. So just to make it super simple. Yeah. In the Constitution, the federal government did not have the authority to suppress speech. And this was the first example 
of the government suppressing speech, but under the guise of, hey, what that person said is dangerous because he's threatening me. Right. So it's the first it's the first bitch move of him going, oh, it's violence. It's yes. violence. It's endangering me. That's right. Or or worse, they use the language of it's endangering the best interests of the United States. Oh, so, so it's not even have... it's not even actual danger because anything could be if I'm a dictator, I could say anything's endangering my interests. So then that becomes a national issue. Right. right? So, yeah, they're conflating like what is uh, the what is the dealings of the government and what is right. a danger to the government or the officials within it with the broader interests of the country. See how they're they're mixing the language already, which is what all the anti-federalists like George Mason and Patrick Henry and all those who were railing and uh, Samuel Adams for a time were railing against during the ratification process of the Constitution. They said that this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, it did. All right. So we got George Washington takes a federal army into a state to punish poor farmers. Then you got John Adams comes around and he starts uh, acting like a dictator and saying people's free speech is not is is dangerous for the country. Now, the second one is a little bit of a gray area because I guess the guy did say a statement of that might be how indoctrinated I am in 2023, where I go, hey, that's the rules. As long as you don't say something violent, it's okay. Um, but I, I'll say that's a little bit of a gray area. It sounds like an over. Yeah, they were. They were. Other people were arrested. There was a guy named a French minister that was kind of pro Jeffersonian named Albert Gallatin. He was arrested and he was um, de- uh, deported. Uh, so you have all these. Different- what was he? What was he arrested for? He was basically arrested because he was not. He was against the Federalists. Oh, so they were just straight up basically taking political prisoners for Absolutely. opposing federalism. Exactly. And they were also suppressing the mail. That was that was a way they could they could because the mail was running through the U, at times the U.S. Postal Service instead right. of private. They could seize the mail and stop it, uh, which is interesting because that is in the Espionage Act that's being used. And later there was another Sedition Act in uh, 1918 under Woodrow Wilson. And those are the acts that are being used to uh, indict Trump. All right. So now who's next? Okay, well, uh, Lincoln, I mean, you, we could do a whole segment on all the crimes Lincoln did. But, right. I mean, let's, let's keep let's, them brief. I guess the biggest one is just going to be the Civil War and how many people he uh, basically threw into slavery and had killed. Yep, that's it. And uh, and but, we could still have slaves. No, I didn't just make that joke. Well, I mean, what you have in the Civil War, remember, is two slave republics fighting each other. Because slavery... way, is it is it true that there was a large amount of black, slave owners in the south is that a true claim what do you mean by large i mean we're talking about comparatively speaking, so i guess people? from what I, I like all right i just get random like snapple flags that float around in my brain right yeah. and so the slave trade i mean it wasn't whites that were putting blacks onto the boats there was late major slave trade everywhere but then from what i understand it was like less than one percent of the South owned slaves at that time or owned plantations. I don't know exactly the stat. And then amongst that 1%, I've heard that some of like the biggest farms uh, were actually run by blacks that own black slaves. But I, I know nothing about this. So I'm just, I'm curious and asking. Well, there were, there were more, actually more people with somewhere around 10 to 15% of white Southerners owned a slave. So we're talking right. more along those lines. But in terms of those who own somewhere around you know, 50 to 100 or even 1,000 slaves, we're talking right. about well below 1%. I mean, we're talking very small numbers. Uh, the wild thing about the, you know, the Civil War real quickly is that white, poor whites 
who had every reason to sort of um, side with blacks against the white patriarchy that was really suppressing them. Because remember, slavery is a labor inhibitor for whites. So long as slavery persists, free whites can't get those jobs, right? right. Or that, that type of labor or opportunity, one might say. So one might want to call upon, if you're a, a, a free white, a poor white, to get rid of slavery. And there are instances, in fact, and historians have chronicled this, of poor whites supporting slave rebellions or poor whites, especially earlier on in the 18 teens, 20s, 30s, into the 40s. But by the 1850s and 60s, as abolitionism and anti-Southern kind of rhetoric ramps up in the North, what the white patriarchy was able to do was to make poor, poor whites believe that their route to social and um, economic ascendancy was owning a slave. So they became so pro-slavery because they saw it as a stepping stone. Like that was like property. the owning a Cadillac of that day. Precisely. That was it. And then, and then, the, and then the rich whites, the patriarchy was able to convince the poor whites that, well, look, the, the unionists are coming to take our slaves away and not compensate us. This is our way. This is where they had deposited most of their capital. It's like if you, if, if someone was to come and take your car or your house, that's right. where they had placed most of their capital. So, so just uh, on that secondary question though, of how many black slave owners were there, was that a, is that a real thing? It was a real thing. There were actually Cherokee Indian slave owners, particularly in Georgia uh, and in the Carolinas, a little bit west of there, too. So it was, you know, slavery's institution was so what, what we might call nuanced. And remember what we talked about with black slave owners and then more so black servants who were more uh, sort of on a hierarchy. Right. Uh, running the system. Th those were also employed as free right. black and as even slaves and compensated as such. It was just a mixed bag. I mean, it's very simple for everyone to talk today about slavery as like one type of practice and institution, but it was tremendously diverse and multifaceted. And where you would where you were and served as a slave uh, dictated what your conditions were as much as the owner and and what you're doing in your daily life. All right. So now let's go. All right, quickly, top three Lincoln crimes. Oh, well, of course, you know, firing upon Fort Sumter when everyone told him not to because it was going to start a war. I mean, the other thing is you have to recognize that he was a talk about being a cuck and a total bitch. He was a total uh, cuck and a total bitch to the railroad industry. It's people don't understand that the reason he was able to ascend in terms of finances and then politically was because he was a lawyer for the biggest railroads in Illinois. Right. His biggest commission came from the Illinois Central Railroad. Okay. Uh, and so therefore, it, and people say, well, if you look back at the legislation during the Civil War, you think, holy shit, why is the Congress during the Civil War passing a Pacific Railway Act of 1862? Well, th that's exactly what the Republican Party was all about. The Republican Party was not about abolition. It was about making sure that the West was set off as land that the federal government could dispose and then hand their cronies in and, and crony industrialists in the railroad industry and in the mining industry so that they could control the land and get huge federal land subsidies from doling out all these bills and largesse to their friends. That's what it was. That's what the tariff was all about. Right. Too. So and that's now, how was we, there any uh, that certainly is corruption. Was mm -hmm. that actually criminal at the time? Was there like a now I'm not saying that they probably shouldn't have had a law to make that criminal, but 
But right. like, was that kind of, uh, I guess, profiteering? I mean, it's the same racket. It goes all the way back then. You work for a lobby industry, you get into government, you make sure that you can dole out rewards. I guess back then, having a rail line, uh, you know, and now it's uh, big pharma, it's wars we're fighting, it's everything. So, you know, right. it's funny that you got that structural problem going all the way back to then. Um, and even now we've got problems that you can kind of, there's like, legally there's a revolving door. I get to work at the FDA and then I get to get hired by Pfizer. I get to work at NIH and get paid by those companies and then go work by those companies. So we almost have a legal problem when it comes to kind of the lobbying and revolving door. I'm curious if back then there was anything that actually made that criminal. Or if you're, you know, Newt Gingrich or Lindsey Graham, when he finally gets out of there, he'll go work off for, work for Boeing or something like that. There's right. a lobby on K Street. Yeah, it's exactly. Well, that was going on back then, too. There wasn't uh, there weren't a lot of anti-corruption laws, but it's clearly graft. It's clearly uh, I mean, it's essentially a very complicated and structured bribe system. So Lincoln so, was a railman the whole time. Didn't care about the war. Uh, well, I mean. He cared about the, remember, he has this weird mystical religion about the union, a house right. divided against itself cannot stand and all these things. And the union must perdure. The union must survive. And why the union was so holy to him, who knows? Okay. Right. But it was. But remember the rest of those, let's call them like political entrepreneurs who use the government for their own, you know, protectionism and, and the roads. They they were entrenched in the Republican Party. They were entrenched in the Lincoln administration. And they made sure that so long as those northern states where all the industrialists were located and operating, when they had control of the union without any southerners getting in their way, especially in the Senate, they were going to pass bills to make sure that all of their control was established and cemented. And then even after the war, you had representatives like Thaddeus Stevens, who just came out openly and said, well, basically, the war and Reconstruction was all about making sure that the national government was forever in the hands of what he called the party of the union. And everybody knew the party of the union was the Republican Party. All right. So Lincoln was a railroad man yeah, working for the railroads, putting people into slavery to go fight so he could expand railroads and get coal profits. Any other major Lincoln crimes? Oh, uh, I mean, I mean, you Lincoln's just a fun one to attack as so many people like look at him as being the best president. Yeah. I mean, he suspends habeas corpus. He arrests officials without trial. And, and, and then he says, here's, here's the funny feature. He says that, of course, there are provisions that allow Congress to suspend habeas corpus, i.e. the right to a speedy trial and, in, and not uh, indeterminate uh, jail terms, right, in the cases of rebellion, right? So he says, in that case, well, look, I've taken on the power of Congress and I, as a military measure, I'm, I'm suspending the laws. This is a rebellion. But then when, for example, you have these instances where uh, Virginia says, well, you can't, uh, according to the Fugitive Slave Law, you, uh, these union generals can't take our slaves because they're taking our property according to your constitutional law. Well, then the generals in Lincoln say, well, no, you, you're not in rebellion. You're a separate state. You're, you declared independence. So what, what is it? It's either they're in rebellion, and so I can suspend habeas corpus, or it's a separate country, and I don't have to abide by the constitutional laws that were passed before. It's a the the whole northern justification for the war is so hypocritical and backwards and immoral and criminal, it, and certainly unconstitutional. But uh, read a Tom Lorenzo, Tom D. Lorenzo book for that. That's those are good books. All right, for that. who's who's next? 
Oh, man, well, we could go down the line. Ulysses S. Grant ran a Ponzi scheme from his from the White House. All right. In this thing called Credit Mobilier, again, dealing with railroads. Essentially, you had investor group, you know, a Ponzi scheme, investor yeah. group A, investor group B, investor group C. You just run the Ponzi scheme. They were selling railroad stock, which was in a boom at the time in the 1860s and 1870s. It reached the highest levels of the Grant administration. He claimed he had nothing to do with it. That was probably bullshit. He certainly knew about it. Right. And sure enough, uh, everybody in the C-class investors got screwed when the railroad stock was determined to be actually not even railroad stock. It was just paper that was going to um, the A and B group investors and then the executives in Credit Mobilier. And they named the company Credit Mobilier because sounding French made it sound fancy at the time. Was All right. Ran a Ponzi screen while he was in office. Who's next? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Well, I mean, we had Grover Cleveland. I mean, he uh, he's one of my favorite presidents, actually my favorite president, because he was the least corrupt and more for okay. the most free market. But he did. And I don't even other people call this corrupt because he in, engaged in in 1894. The U.S. government was bankrupt. OK, because there was a panic in 1893. There was only a, like somewhere around $80 million in gold reserves in the whole federal system. And so more than we have now. So he went on a yacht and he met with J.P. Morgan and he secured private financing for the federal government. Now think about right. that. The okay. government, the head executive of the United States has to go pliantly to the richest man in the world at the time and ask for $60, $60 million in gold reserves to just make sure the federal government can continue to run and function. Right. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable that just about 100 years later, or 110 years later, you have major banks like JP Morgan going to the federal government to bail them out? It shows the incredible right. evolution, really mutation of our economic political system. Well, back then, because uh, even when you like read about governments, I guess from the past, like borrowing from the Rothschilds to fund wars, I guess yeah. governments kind of understood that they can't just print money. And so money mm -hmm. has to exist in order for them to spend it. So they would have to actually go out and borrow it. When the scheme right. changed and they just went, oh, we can just invent the money. Well, then when they can just invent the money, then the same bankers who helped you create the scheme to make it seem legitimate that you can invent the money are going to get their slice of the pie and you're going to be yep. sending the money. That's kind of mm -hmm. seems to me the historical switch there. And then think about how when the switch flipped, how those same bankers are then the financiers to war companies right. and armed companies. And then as a result of wanting to make money, they have to make sure that there's perpetual conflict somewhere around the globe and perpetual empire. And that's a thing that we're going to get to, too. All right. So Glover Cleveland. Uh, but why was that? Why was that against the law to go borrow no, money? No, or you no just... it wasn't against the law. It wasn't against the law. He negotiated and it was passed as an act of Congress. So he did everything. Right. So sort of above order. But people will say that that was an illegal act simply because he was meeting and negotiating with uh, to, to resolve this. And it was very supposedly secretive, even though right. everyone knew that he was doing it with J.P. Morgan on J.P. Morgan's yacht. I mean, I, I, the, I, the reason I bring that up is because progressives tend to bring that up as a major crime. And I think that's BS. So, OK, what, what do we got well, next? Well, Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, oh, my God, this guy. He was uh, he he did his criminality largely through executive orders. I mean, if you look back at 19th century presidents, the average executive orders that they passed were somewhere in a four year term around 11, 12, 13. OK, right. In a seven year term. So it was actually seven plus year term. He passed eleven hundred and fifty four executive orders.
Right. And when I say passed, I mean just wrote them essentially into law. And this, these executive orders ranged from seizing state lands to make federal parks, which was clearly unconstitutional. But he just and I heard uh, I heard that that was a Pacific Railroad play as well in terms of uh, helping the Pacific Railroad run lines to destinations. Correct. So like, think like the, I think Keystone was just to basically drum up some business for the Pacific Railroad. Uh, yeah. I mean, you got these. You got these. Uh, railroad companies that, by the way, they're subsidized by the federal government and they tried to incentivize them in the best way. And Tom Woods does a great job explaining how, what a cluster fuck it was for the uh, transcontinental railroad because they were incentivized to build lines quickly. They did it shitty. And then they put, put lines in like little locales where there was a powerful politician. Right. It made no economic sense. And then worst of all, what, because they were incentivized to build as much line as possible, when the Transcontinental Railroad was finally about to meet in 1869 in Utah, they ran parallel lines. Cause Just to keep going. Right, yeah, because they want to keep the thing going. Also, it was an ecological disaster, too, because the uh, more mountainous areas right. they got more money for. So they just blew up mountainsides. Right. Because they would say then, well, this we need more money for this. And they got it from the federal government. But same thing with uh, the, the National Park play. I mean, he said it was for conservationism. And there was a big debate with John Weir and all these other ecologists of the time or environmentalists of the time, whether we should just leave it pristine or leave it for some human use and the like. But all it was is really a power play of the federal government. And Teddy was criminal net. Even before he was president, I mean, he inspired the Spanish-American War. Without him, we likely don't go to war with Spain. Uh, and that's a really pivotal event in American history because it's from that point that America goes from an empire that was essentially an American empire building out against Native Americans and, of course, Southerners after the Civil War and into transoceanic uh, colonies. We're going to get the Philippines and Guam and where is this coming from that we're able to, as an American republic and democracy that seceded from Great Britain, then subjugate other peoples? But he was responsible for that. Uh, and then didn't didn't he seize gold? That was FDR. Uh, okay, FDR seized gold. But then Roosevelt didn't... Uh, who's the? Was he the New Deal? No, FDR's New Deal. Yeah, see, it's amazing crime. how uneducated I am. It's great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what were Roosevelt's other crimes? Oh, my God. Let's see. Well, he basically tries to manipulate an annexation of the Dominican Republic just because he wants to during right. president. Uh, and then the whole scandal of getting the canal zone from Panama. He is sent, He almost got us in a war with Colombia, of all countries, in trying to get the he dealt with this with this really corrupt uh, French businessman to get the canal rights to build a canal in Panama. He sent the he sent the U.S. Navy without congressional approval to Colombia was trying to hold on to Panama. Panama was a province of Colombia. Right. And what he did was he sent the U.S. Navy without congressional approval to intercept the Colombian Navy when they tried to make sure that the Panamanians didn't gain their independence. We inspired an insurrection, the Roosevelt administration did, in Panama to break them away so that we could get the canal zone. All right. Who's next? Oh, let's see. Well, let's let's go with Woodrow Wilson. I mean, okay. you're talking about absolute criminal. I mean, I, what I did was he has so many crimes that it's hard to measure from, even if it's if we're talking about the legal passage of things like the uh, income tax and uh, 
and the way he he worked in the different amendments that allowed for the income tax to go in the 17th amendment for example or 18th amendment too so then you have how did uh, how do you convince people to take on an income tax this is the most under appreciated thing that is so sinister that wilson did okay so i'm going to really try to summarize this there was this push because we're talking about the progressive era right right and there's this push to have government come in and seize railroads um limit tariffs because tariffs were seen as taxes that helped industry right to help and also move to a to a silver standard okay away from a gold standard because that was supposed to help the farmers who was who were always in debt because silver was inflationary it's easier to pay off debt right right so he uses this kind of push um, that William Jennings Bryan and other populists and progressives had done. And he says, look, I'm going to enable the federal government to do all these things, to seize railroads and create these, um, these laws like the Hepburn Act in 1906, which he was in favor of, but Roosevelt passed because he was president at the time, to limit the size of these monopolies and robber barons and all these things. And government's going to come in and be the fair judge and referee of all of these things. All right. So he does this and he says, look, if I lower the tariff and thus reduce taxes on everyday ordinary Americans, particularly farmers, and stop this kind of boon for industrialists, well, I need some mechanism by which to fund the federal government to police all of these guys, right? Well, that mechanism is going to go from the tariff, which was the major revenue source. Well, I need another revenue source. And what's that revenue source? Taxes. Can I ask you... This might not be a question you can answer. It's just uh, floating around in my head. So, all right. So if you got a gold standard, I guess I guess you can argue, I mean, it shouldn't be deflationary because there's more gold in the ground and like the more valuable gold becomes, the more of an incentive you have to pull it out of the ground. So like, I mean, I guess if like we were on a full gold standard, maybe we would go full scale on harvesting all the gold. But like, I, I mean, I, I like now if we switched over to gold, obviously it would shoot up in value because like there would be a new usage that we're actually using it as currency. If you're right. actually using gold, typically speaking, as currency, uh, I mean, I, I like there might be an element of it being deflationary, but it shouldn't be like, I don't know, if you're holding on to your gold, I, I would say it's it wouldn't it shouldn't be appreciating by 10 percent a year because there's more gold in the ground. Do I have that? Like, let's just start with that as a base. Do I have that basically right? Yeah, if, if you there's a great book on this and it's actually focused on Bitcoin, but uh, right. Safi Amus has a book, The Bitcoin Standard, and he it's talks a great about book, how, yes. Yeah, he talks about this phenomenon and he looks back and he, he, he answers the question that you precisely asked. And that is, if there's a big demand and utility for gold, like under the international gold standard as it existed from like 1880 to the First World War, well, weren't there times where you'd have gold because companies would be incentivized to mine more and more, you'd have an influx of gold. And he charts it and it turns out that it's not the case. Even in times where there was an influx of gold mined, that didn't lead to a kind of inflationary um, cycle. And because people started to hold on to it, they still found it right, to but be I'm, valuable. I guess I'm, I'm stating the opposite, that if gold went oh. up tremendously in value... I would think your gold miners would want to then actually produce more of it, which would kind of uh, balance out. The, well, all right. But getting back to, the, I guess, the broader point with the farmers, which doesn't really make sense to me. If you could yeah. forecast for deflation, 
then you mm. I, you would almost forecast into a loan of I'm going to take the loan, but I'm actually going to be paying you back. Like you could do almost the reverse of the way that we do interest bearing loans where I'm going to pay you back. I, I don't know. Maybe you can't operate this way, but I'm actually going to pay you back relative to what it was worth at the time that I took it plus a percentage, not relative to like where you, you would almost have to do that in deflation. If not, farmers would just have to charge significantly higher prices and they would be able to dictate that because at the end of the day, they're the food supply. So, like, Correct. I don't really understand uh, unless every farmer is really just an idiot. They had no understanding of finance. And so they would all just be constantly going belly up. And then you're saying that no one smart enough would actually step into the industry to create the most in-demand product, which is food. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand kind of like the general American narrative of the farmers are fucked and we're going to starve. Yeah, the, and it's it goes down to who's more coordinated. Remember, because the farmers are operating essentially as individual separate entities. So right. when they take their harvest to an exchange like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that existed way back in the 1860s, right? They're not as coordinated, so they're 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 incentivized, as we would hope, to produce as much foodstuffs as possible, so as right. to keep the price of food down, right? And then they'd be yet again incentivized through market mechanisms. And then through credit, through mercantile exchanges and through banks and the like to obtain that credit. So but whereas the farmer is operating as a kind of independent entity and not coordinating with other farmers in terms of, well, should we form a guild and create production this way and then limit it, hold back wheat harvest for a moment? They're not doing that. Conversely, right. the, the railroads, the, um, the mercantile exchanges, and the banking system is coordinated. That was the argument of William Jennings Bryan when he did his famous cross of gold speech in 1896. He said, the farmer by necessity, because it's a seasonal activity, is going to find himself in debt. And therefore, as a result of being in debt, he is beholden to the gold standard system in which, let's say, even if the farmers got together and coordinated, let's say, right. forecasting right. There's a stupidity here, though, of that if you're living in an environment where farmers can't store the crop, then that means that other people can't store the crop and like you as a consumer. So mm -hmm. if I refuse to sell, let's just say your price is too low and I go, fine, I'm not selling you my, my wheat. Well, then no. two weeks from now, the grocery store is not going to have wheat. The people aren't going to have the wheat. So there's going to be like there's almost a perfect relationship there of them running out of food is going to correspond with my food rotting in like right. per, so unless you're basically saying that the farmers were so stupid that they never everyone was just basically cutting each other out while the big banks did a better job of working together of like you know i, I don't know like i'm a little confused here as to why we're running into problems no i, I know this is totally off topic but i'm just i'm right. interested no, but it's like when you have a, a bounty and, and remember agricultural production because of the innovations of the 19th century, uh, deep seed plowing, um, you had like McCormick's Reaper. I mean, you have farm and agriculture production skyrocketing. So it's kind of like when you have an influx of labor during the Industrial Revolution. If a laborer comes to your factory and says, I'm not going to work for that wage, well, there's always some other guy that's going to be out there who will, right? Now, right. you could say th that is, you know, we could go through the Kuznets curve and how that inequality eventually levels out and there's prosperity at the end of that curve. But in the initial part of the thing, it's like if a farmer's not going to sell to, at my price, his wheat, 
there's some schlep in Kansas that's going to. And I'll pay the extra rate for a little while to ensure that I get this freighted up from Kansas instead of Indiana to Chicago. So that's that's where they were sort of taking advantage of the what we call the initial side of the Kuznets curve, where you have this kind of equality of labor or a quality of supply. And so the capitalists can benefit, but eventually there's a leveling out after it peaks. So that's the best explanation I could say. In other words, like the coordination of the banking system right. under the gold standard was advantageous to the bankers because of what, they, what again, I, I'm saying that William James Bryan and these farmers are getting it wrong. They're, 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 they're blaming gold and it's, it's deflationary tendencies or more so it's, um, it's leveling out as a store of value and saying silver is the answer or bimetallism, what they call it is the answer. Cause we could pay right. back our debts if we just dollarize silver, silver coins, and that's going to help us. But that didn't help them in the end. Either. All right. So to go, I forgot what well, we were in, uh, which person <laughs> are we talking about again? We were talking about Wilson, but I mean, they're all right. Let, so let, what let, else, what else we got on Wilson? Wilson? So Wilson, I, I, I forget what the crime was here. Well, I mean, just his his underhanded way in which oh, create, of, of creating uh, of creating the income tax. OK, right. I mean, he did other really ridiculous things with like basically it's as a result of Woodrow Wilson, too, that government officials became essentially the in, uh, the base voting block of progressive Democrats. OK, because I mean, he passes all these laws that protect them and give them ridiculous benefits. And so they become. And by the way, the Republicans did this in the 19th century with civil war pensions in the military. Right. Democrats are just doing it in on steroids during Wilson's administration. I think the let's talk about the Espionage Act real quick because it has much so much relevance with the other thing is Woodrow Wilson essentially starts World War One, at least drags the United States into World War One. Right. And without if, if a rational, non um British siding um progressive megalomaniac was in the White House. So we're thinking like someone like if Warren Harding or Calvin Coolidge was in fact, or Grover Cleveland was in the White House, the United States would never have come close to sniffing entrance in the World War One, and it did anyway. I mean, a bigger crime that he did was he made sure, and we know this by, for fact, that in a war zone, as Britain is fighting Germany and there are German U-boats all over Great Britain, the Wilson administration was encouraging Americans and U.S. companies to travel into a war zone on ships. Okay. The Lithuania, right? Uh, uh, Lusitania. The Lusitania. <laughs> in, in May of 19... Perfect. The, in May of 1915, <clears throat> the Lusitania sunk. Now, the Lusitania was shown or said to be a passenger ship or a com with co some commercial stuff. Robbie got hit by one torpedo by a U-boat. Right. Sunk in a record amount of time. There is no doubt. In fact, it was confirmed in the late 1980s and early 1990s that there were munitions. That means, get this, a U.S. president secretly sending arms to Britain to fight Germany. There were munitions on board. And the reason we know that there was a Guardian article, you know, the kind of liberal progressive uh, newspaper in Britain, when the Guardian back then was actually anti-war, there was a diving team in the early 90s that wanted to go and explore the Lusitania, and they were stopped by the British government. And the reason that was given was because there's too many explosives that could detonate still on the Lusitania. Unbelievable. That's in the, in the All right. 
Before we go to the uh, <laughs> next, uh, I, I do have a new sponsor on the show. I forgot to hit this plug before I had you on, and then we'll also plug the book. But uh, new sponsor, it's called Premier Pharma. And you and I know how bad uh, you try and get yourself some medicines, and there's always a racket. You got CVS is coordinating with the rebates, and everything's a racket in the entire pharmaceutical world. So if you're a doctor or an independent pharmacist, you want to quit fleecing the patients, making sure that Big Pharma makes all the money through rebates and this other uh, shenanigans, well, with Premier Pharma, you've got better options on the secondary market. I believe that this is for generic drugs to get them at better costs so that you can pass them on to all these dying grandmas trying to live off their social security and their other nonsense without the pharmaceutical companies making all the money. Uh, so you want to learn more about this, you can go over to premierpharma.com. This, uh, this is for the really uh, the well-to-do run-your-mouth listeners who are independent doctors or they've got their uh, your own independent pharmacy uh, you might really enjoy partnering with Premier Pharma, and if you're interested in just more of all the scams that exist in the pharmaceutical and doctor landscape that's helping basically just three companies keep all the money, you can check out the Pharma Problem Podcast. So you work in the space, Premier Pharma, you're interested, generally speaking, in all the scams of pharma, you can check out the Pharma Problem Podcast. And Gary, before we continue... Why don't you plug your incredible book where people can, uh, you know, get their hands on more of this uh, incredible historical information. Thanks, Robbie. A lot of it is in a twisted history of the United States from 1450 to 1945. <clears throat> you can get that on Amazon, anywhere books are sold. Uh, also, my podcast and uh, website is hotwaterhistory.com. So a lot of the stuff, again, that no one ever taught you, but you should know, uh, is contained in that book, especially about American history. Also, All right. I want to say, yes. along with the, the pharma company, <clears throat> excuse me, is I'm wearing sheath underwear, too. Are they still sponsored? Hell yeah. Yeah, of course yeah. they are. Promo code RYM. Yeah. You get yourself 20% off. I got my sheaths on today as well. <laughs> Can't go anywhere without them. I also got the, the sheath t-shirt. Um, All right. What do we got? What do we okay, got next? So yeah, once you switch over, it's it's uh, that's it. You're not going to wear any other underwear. It's that good. So let's just talk about real quickly the Espionage Act because that's really what we're that's the, this is the act that's being used to indict Trump right now. Oh yeah, who uh who put that one in place? Woodrow Wilson. Okay. So, yeah. In fact, 106 years ago tomorrow it was passed. All right. Okay. 106 years ago tomorrow the Espionage Act. And I have it right here. I read through it in anticipation of the episode. All right. It's amazing what the federal government under Wilson as the uh, the, United, the United States had declared war on Germany and entered World War One in April of 1917. This act is passed two months later, all right? It was an act that was kind of a revision of an earlier act in 1911 called the National Defense Secrets Act. Worse than that, that act was based on an act from Britain called the British Secrets Act of 1886. Now, what, what does that have all in common? The United States entering a world war. The United States before that passed that National Secrets Act in 1911 because they were, we were fighting a rebellion called the Moro Rebellion in the Philippines. Guess what? Filipinos didn't want to be subjugated by Americans as much as they didn't want to be under the colonial rule of Spain. So, of course, they're constantly rebelling. So we pass, we pass these laws. Basically, what these laws are, they're empire-protecting laws. We don't need these laws. Unless the United States, the supposed beacon of freedom that, of course, broke away from Imperial Britain, 
if we don't have an empire, we don't need these secrecy laws. Right. If we're if we're doing what had been very American and just worrying about ruling ourselves, defending the country and engaged in basic free market and capitalistic enterprise, none of this matters. Like, for example, with all these documents that are, are being tossed around and are in different locations, whether it's Biden or Obama or Trump. I look back and Andrew Jackson, this is fantastic. Andrew Jackson said when it was he was questioned about documents being leaked from the White House and from Congress, he goes, I don't, he said, this is, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, I care not a whit if anyone has access to all of my documents. So this is how open it was supposed to be. Right. Why, why the need for all the secrecy unless you're doing underhanded shit to advance American imperial missions? And that's exactly what the Espionage Act is all about. It basically made illegal any kind of things that the government, of course, just like any sedition act, by the way, another sedition act was passed in 1819, anything the government determined was injurious to the national interests of the United States and the government of the United States, interesting that they include that, is then you could face jail time. It was up to 20 years. And in the Espionage Act, if it was done during a time of war, it was punishable by death or imprisonment for not more than 30 years. So this is a capital offense now. And so with the Espionage Act, like, is it so broad that <laughs> what do you have to you, like if you're just uh I guess even handing over the crimes of government, like do you have to actually be spying for a foreign adversary or they purposely made it very broad that reporting on any activities is essentially a crime? That's a great question. And here's the thing. I wondered the same thing myself. Is it during war where we're sharing secrets with a belligerent nation right? or to cover any country? And it says explicitly any foreign nation. Right. So, and look at, right. So I'll you can call you can call up you can call up Canada and say, hey, I've got some intelligence on, uh, you know, the, the, the Russians yeah. who are up at your up northern border. And theoretically, mm -hmm. you might have just violated this act. And Not now in the, you did. right. And then but then how are you ever able to share intelligence? Are you supposed to go through a court beforehand to get it approved? Like it sounds to me like any sharing of any information could potentially be a violation of the way that this is written. Of or course, at least the way that I, I, I understand it as presented. And that's why the rule of law is just a bullshit concept. It's all right. dependent upon the subjective evaluation or assessment of the reader. Right. Or those who are in power. I mean, like, for example, I'll read a, a, a portion of it to you, a real quick one. <clears throat> this is section one. He says, the, uh, the law says that whoever for the purpose of obtaining information respecting the national defense with intent or reason to believe that the information to be obtained is to be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation goes upon, enters, flies over, or otherwise obtains information. And then it goes into concerning any vessel, aircraft, dockyard, canal. So you could say that the, the very law is criminal itself. That's it. All right. It. So I uh, now I'm curious to know, since that law was enacted over the last 103 years that it existed, how many people have been prosecuted under it? Oh, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer to it. Because it sounds like you've got it's almost incredible if you think about it. So 103 mm -hmm. years ago, they wrote a law that they're like, hey, how do we make sure that nobody's reporting on anything that goes on in government? 
Like what's like kind of the fail safe law that we can prosecute anybody at any time and say that them just reporting on uh, activities here is treason. And then mm-hmm. within the 103 years that they wrote the fair, let's call it the fail, the fail safe dictator, dic, dictator law that allows you to prosecute anybody for any right. information that ever looks bad. And like, it, 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 you know what I mean? It's like 103 years ago, a dictator thought, all right, what's the rule I need to make sure that within this democracy structure, I can prosecute anybody. Mm-hmm. And then within the 103 years, there was no better rule that they could bust Donald Trump on, except someone basically stood up at the meeting and went, oh, you know, we do have that one fail safe one that basically mm-hmm. anything anyone does could fall under. Correct. That's that's basically the application of this law. I was wrong. I do know that the number of people that were um, charged with and prosecuted just during World War One with this law and then the later Sedition Act was twenty one hundred. But so during and those were probably people that were criticizing the war. I'm, exactly. I assume the- I assume there weren't twenty one hundred twenty one hundred Americans and World War One that knew specific military secrets that were sharing with the allies. Of course not. And many of them were like Eugene Debs. They were uh, mailing out mailings, which again became illegal under these acts that were right. uh, working against the draft and the, and conscription. So oh, that, interesting. Right. Or any are any arguments that were sort of for American non-involvement or non-intervention in the war fell under the Sedition Acts. Right. So it, thus far, just for the, the sake of technical accuracy, we're not exploring crimes as much as we're exploring uh, presidential policies that clearly undermine the structure of how an honest democracy would work. Correct. Or we're, we're and then we're using the same laws that are said to preserve democracy and preserve this republic from Which outside. Are actually, or are empire. They're all empire laws. Precisely to create the American empire. I mean. I feel like Cicero in the Roman Republic, where you're constantly saying, this is an empire, we're not supposed to be an empire. And yet it's clearly what it operates and has operated as, certainly since Theodore Roosevelt, uh, perhaps even earlier with the Spanish-American War. All right. So now we just did Woodrow Wilson, gets the Mm -hmm. uh, income tax, gets us into World War I, and creates corrupt government systems to police basically dissent. Which, to recap, was the treason, what the American treason, whatever, which is what they're busting Donald Trump under, and then the American, what is it, seditious, uh, espionage and sedition acts, espionage and I'll, I'll read it someday and get it down. All right, who's next? No, let's go back to our last time I was on the show when we talked okay. about FDR. All right, FDR throughout his presidency broke the Espionage Act. Okay. He was knowingly giving oh giving information to the Russians. Precisely. How is this? And he had operative knowing uh, agents of the Soviet Union within his White House and right. his administration. So the idea that you have one progressive president, Woodrow Wilson, who passes the Espionage Act to preserve democracy, and then the guy who called Woodrow Wilson his political daddy, who styled his political career on Woodrow Wilson, and by the way, his domestic and foreign policies on Wilsonianism, then breaks this law over and over and openly again, and it's never brought up, is just shows you how arbitrary the the law is. Let's talk about the government expansion, seizing gold, internment camps, uh, the New Deals, and all of the socialism that he instituted. Give it to us. Didn't he also expand the Supreme Court? He tried to. 
Oh, that okay. was one thing that uh, the Congress balked at. Um, so he tried to expand the Supreme Court to get some of his <clears throat> more radical um, bills like the Wagner Act, which was so right. and others, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which essentially was um, not really anything different than what Lenin had attempted to do in the Soviet Union with uh, unions and with farming and with acquisition or essentially government running of major industries. That's what was going on there. But that that was ruled unconstitutional at, at different points. But I mean. I mean, we, what we have in FDR is a man who, I mean, remember, I, I think I told you last time, the first day he was in office, he turned to one of his officials, I think it was Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of Defense or War at the time, and he said, how can we get involved in a war with Japan? This is the first day in the Oval Office. Japan's not a belligerent nation. Japan, and but it's because just like his distant relative, his second cousin or whatever, Theodore Roosevelt, he saw the United States as being destined for empire and Japan was the major competitor in the Pacific. I mean, and then we get into the New Deal. I mean, the crimes there are just manifest and manifold. The idea that, <clears throat> oh, another thing about Roosevelt, he campaigns in 1940, what was it, 1940, as a peacenik. He goes to Boston and he says in an open speech, he says, your sons are not going off to any foreign wars. And there's a good reason to go to Boston and say that because no Irish man is going to go fight for Britain again. Right. right. So all the Bostonians like, OK, well, we're not going to do war. And sure enough, he once he gets elected, he sees that well, that's a, a, a political mandate. And he passes Len Lease in 1941. And sure enough, we get dragged into the war by the Roosevelt administration because he's picking a fight with Germany and Japan throughout the rest of those years. So those all are right. uh, I think, oh, how about how about from the Holocaust perspective. Um, 1938, a ship from. Um, Western Europe carrying about 1,100 Jewish refugees from Germany and Austria and Western Europe <clears throat> comes to U.S. shores. They refuse the immigrants' entry, the refugees. Uh, they, they, they sail down to Cuba. They come back and they, the refugees were actually writing as some of them are committing suicide by throwing themselves overboard because they're fearing going back to Nazi Germany uh, or Austria, occupied Austria at the time. So they're starting to commit suicide. There's a humanitarian disaster aboard the ship. They write personal letters that we know Roosevelt received, and he never gave them an answer. And so the ship had to go back. And of the 1,100, something like 900 died in the Holocaust. So this idea that Roosevelt was, oh, I don't know what's going on in Germany, right. uh, is all, all BS too. He was an absolute war criminal and should be prosecuted as such, or should have been. What were his war crimes? Well, I mean, think about, uh, for example, the whole idea of funding the Soviet Union as it's carrying out enormous atrocities throughout, right. well, the Granny world Ray. and in, in Europe. I mean, his war crimes were, of course, subverting Congress and just usurping all of the congressional oversight of the war by engaging in all of this spy, these spy networks and, and the like. Um, the whole idea of the secretive Manhattan Project program. I mean, how is that in a republic, if we were truly a functioning republic, why would congressional officials not have detailed understanding of a weapons program of that size, scope, magnitude, and power? All right. Who, who's next? <clears throat> I mean, I went to, there are a lot of the other ones, but I just- Why, don't we, uh, why don't we jump ahead to, uh, <laughs> to the Bush, but the, the more recent ones. Let's go Clinton, Bush, Obama. Okay. Well, Clinton, Bush, Obama, I mean, talk about uh, sharing uh, any secrets of the United States. 
I mean, especially handing out things to perceived allies. I mean, uh, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Clinton engaged in the Serbian war uh, without having any kind of congressional oversight. The whole idea, by the way, the whole idea of the United States operating as being able to participate, the president to be able to participate wars as in war for 60 days without congressional oversight or approval is insane. But think about as a result of that, the president has given been given a, a kind of carte blanche to do exactly what the Espionage Act forbade him to do, or, or any other person within the United States, and share that's to share military secrets, uh, even right. with allies, even production uh, goals or or uh, output. We're not that, that's covered in the Espionage Act, and these people. Uh, I mean, it's as if like the Espionage Act was never written. And then these these presidents act from Clinton. I mean, George H.W. Bush sharing secrets about how the Kuwaitis were stealing oil from the Iraqis. And then our, uh, who was it? I forget. It was uh, one of his uh, underlings gave, gave, basically gave Saddam Hussein permission to invade Kuwait. And then we start the Iraq, the Gulf War the next year. Right. Really? So the, the Espionage Act is the law in the books that everyone's violating literally every day. And yeah. it's just uh, it's like the little button of, oh, we want to get this guy in trouble. We'll declare it to be this. Right. I mean, are you really saying that during the whole um, f no fly zones over Iraq throughout the 1990s, that the Clinton administration was not sharing secrets with the French and the British? They were helping us carry out those missions. That's insane. That would fall right. under the Espionage Act as punishable by law. Uh, and yet it was done anyway. Or how about how about during let's go back to Reagan. Reagan, in, uh, let's stick with the same region. I mean, Iran-Contra is a ridiculous violation of law and absolutely criminal. But b before that, remember, we supported Iraq against Iran. And right. even as it's come out, this is what's even more scandalous, a lot of the chemical weapons that were unleashed by Saddam Hussein against the Iranians were manufactured in, guess what? N the Netherlands, Germany, and Great Britain, okay? And we were the ones shipping them to Iraq to fight this war because we didn't like the revolutionary Islamic regime in Iran. So, again, these are military secrets, not approved by Congress to do that. And yet it was, of course, done anyway. All right. All and the then, uh, uh, all right, let's go back to Clinton. What other Clinton crimes do we got? I know that as governor, you know, he was working with the CIA to bring drugs in while drugs were illegal in this country. Oh, and if you're speaking of Reagan crimes, he was also in on that drug racket. Right. Uh, all uh, the Iran-Contra funneling, CIA funneling flights of enormous drug shipments into... There's a great movie. Have you seen that American-made movie with Tom Cruise? Yeah, that's a good movie where he's running the drugs. <laughs> right, right. So that was all under under uh, Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush. Uh, Clinton, I mean, you're, you're getting into things like, again, when um, you're sharing all of this, all this information with uh, allies, NATO allies, even right. um, underhand dealings. I mean, like, for example, uh, what was given, it, this hasn't been answered. You remember that in the 1980s and even in the early 90s, Libya under Gaddafi was just kind of a mortal enemy of the United States. You know, he carried out that bombing in which his daughter died and like under Reagan. And then Libya switches after it abandons its nuclear program. Right. But what were the benefits? What were the military? There were, I, there, I'm pretty, fairly certain that a lot of military goods and aid went into Libya from the United States. Uh, how about Let's just go back to Obama and Trump for a moment. I mean, think about how 
we're eating, and, and this is Dave, uh, Dave's kit and caboodle, you know, that right. many more. I mean, we're sharing, obviously we're sharing secrets with the Saudis. So, I mean, right. Scott Horton says that we, uh, the Saudi planes, which are F-14s, which are manufactured by in, in the United States and sold off to Saudi Arabia, they were using aircraft carriers, U.S. aircraft carriers to fly off them. And I didn't know this, but every time a plane takes off, the tires are done. So you have to replace the tires. So they basically really? just throw the tires in the yeah they throw the tires in the ocean every right? single time. I that's what I this is what, what Scott on, that, what, what on military planes that might that yeah. must be that must be specifically if like they're landing on those like on the air, aircraft carriers. But yeah. I I know nothing about that. I I don't know. No, All right, so let's but let's jump to Bush. The tires. So we've got Bush. Uh, you know he's torturing people down in Gitmo. There's oh, no yeah. trials. You're spying on the mm -hmm. American citizens. Dave talks about that stuff all the time. Then we got Obama. He's droning people, no declaration of war, but basically continues that for his entire duration. Uh, any how other major about, crimes about, of Obama? How about beyond Gitmo? How about all those dark sites where we were shipping off terrorists from Afghanistan to Pakistan? I think we still do that. I still think we oh, do that. Right. We just I ship them to Kazakhstan. Know. Yeah. Right. Let other all people the, torture them. All of a sudden, these uh, operatives uh, of Al Qaeda, or you know, um, what uh, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or you know, all these uh, in ISIS, you have all these operatives that are suddenly in Cairo, and uh, they're they're in these secret prisons. Of course, that's going on. Yeah. Right. Uh, all right. There we go. Thorough recap. We could have done more, but we're an hour and a half into the episode. Yeah. I do have a day job to report to. Yeah, go yeah, for I love it. how you have Marlago behind you. <laughs> yeah, well, beforehand, I also did, we're gonna have some fun with the green screen. Still got some uh, studio improvements coming, kinks to work out. And uh, Gary, why don't you plug it once more? Hot water. Uh, Hotwaterhistory.com, uh, and we have a hot water history podcast. That's great. I got some merch up there that people might like, libertarian and and cap stuff, and of course the book, A Twisted History of the United States. Uh, 1450 to 1945. Hell yeah. And Summer Porch Tour, the season of porches are, is upon us. You get all the dates, com. More dates coming soon. Uh, I don't think I'm doing a Chicago, but I do think I'm doing a Milwaukee. Uh, maybe you want to come wow. out for that. Um, what else I got going on? I think that's it. Jacksonville this weekend coming out. Gary, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Robbie. Peace.